And I was talking with a friend yesterday about this, like trying to describe how it is that I like, so, and I keep saying in this conversation that knowledge construction, knowledge building is a collaborative process. And I want Scholarship to support people in this collaborative process, but I also want to embody that collaborative process. It's tempting to think that to do your best work, you have to hunker down in your creative cave, scratch out your brilliant thoughts by the fire, and only emerge once you've had your eureka moment. In fact, I know plenty of thinkers and entrepreneurs who have tried to do exactly that. Sometimes it's a fear of criticism. Other times it's a fear of someone stealing the work when it's not yet complete. Often it's a reaction to the imposter complex, feeling like your work isn't enough, that you're not enough and might never be. Regardless of the reason why, retreating to the creative cave has killed at least as many good ideas as it's birthed. Today, we're going to examine a different way of getting to your eureka moment and developing your body of work. You're listening to What Works, the show that examines the unique ways small business owners make it work. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. Today's guest is Margie Thomas, the founder of Scholarshape. With a PhD in English language and literature, Margie has been an academic writing coach for over six years now. But recently, Margie has been working to systematize her coaching and create a framework she can share with more academics crafting books and papers. I wanted to have Margie on the show to share what she calls the co-construction of knowledge and meeting. Margie has been sharing the bones of her coaching framework, the story argument model, with her audience little by little as she develops it. Together with her audience, she's defining the work and improving on it. Instead of waiting for her eureka moment, she's utilizing her creative process in dialogue with the people who need her work most. Margie and I chat about the personal growth process that comes along with sharing your work publicly, how her work is evolving because of the way people interact with it, and the way she came to terms with the idea of an MVP or minimum viable product. Do you share your work and ideas with your audience while you're still figuring it out? Do you work out loud and invite others into the process? Or do you prefer to hunker down with your ideas until you feel ready? I'd love to hear from you. Hit me up on Instagram, tag me or DM me. I'm at Tara underscore McMullen. Let's explore what works together. And now let's find out what works for Margie Thomas. Margie Thomas, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Tara. Of course, I'm excited about this topic. This is something that I have experienced myself. And when you wrote and and shared what you did, that this is that this particular topic that we're talking about today is something that you're currently going through and exploring and and having lots of, I think, curiosity around. I knew I wanted to talk to you about it. So we're going to get uh, started by better understanding, I think, the passion behind your business, because I have a feeling that this is a key part of this bigger story that we want to tell. So why are you so obsessed with academic writing in the first place? Well, that is a very good question. I know a lot of people think of academic writing as like the most boring thing in the world. People might associate it with um, the essays they had to write in college, or if they're familiar with academic writing that's being published by professional researchers, you know, it tends to be really full of jargon and technical language and really dense um, and kind of difficult to wade through. Um, but for me, academic writing, academic publications, you know, books and articles that researchers publish represents knowledge in the process of formation. Um, you know, researchers kind of exist at the front lines of knowledge construction, at the edge of what is known to be true. 
and they're kind of pushing those boundaries further. So when we read academic books and articles, we're seeing like our current best sense of what could be true in any given discipline. And so to me, that's exciting, <laughs> even though there's lots of big words and long sentences <laughs> and it can be hard to kind of process what the texts are saying. Yeah, I love that. I love the way you put it too, that this is, that this kind of writing represents the edge of what we know or could know to be true. I mean, even just the way you put it, that makes me really excited about it too. <laughs> and it makes me want to go back and revisit some things um, in that in that light. Um, although I can get pretty excited about um, academic writing too. So uh, I'm, I'm oh, glad good. that not only, yeah, I'm glad that not only are we having this conversation about your business, um, but that we're looking at this, this topic um, from a different angle as well. So you've been doing this work for quite a while now, right? Supporting um, academics, supporting uh, researchers in publishing their work and in telling the stories that they want to tell. But that right now you're in a transition into sharing your work and training much larger audiences, kind of building a bigger profile. So before we examine the shift into building that bigger profile, can you tell us how you've been finding and working with clients uh, to this point? Yes. Okay. So I started the business almost six years ago and within the realm of academia, like this exists, this, this concept of, um, someone writing an academic book or article, hiring an editor to help support them through that process by, um, helping them talk through ideas, giving them written feedback on their draft and progress to help them figure out how to structure it, how to revise it, what to cut, what to add, what order to put elements of the manuscript within, like that exists as a service. And there's a fairly robust market for it too, because these, you know, these researchers are pouring years of their lives into these projects and the success of their publications like really determines the fate of their careers, you know, whether they get hired and promoted and things like that. Um, and so it wasn't, in a sense, it was, it, if you're good at, at that service, it's not hard to establish a thriving, you know, solopreneur kind of practice doing that um, and then getting clients through word of mouth. So that's pretty much how my business functioned for the first five years or so, um, where I was, you know, consistently booked out weeks in advance with this, this in-demand service that, you know, the market is not saturated. So if anyone is listening to this podcast and <laughs> wants to become an academic editor, um, what happened though? So I was just kind of living in this cave, you know, with my head down, intensely focused on one project at a time, engaging really deeply with these individual scholars, um, not trying to be a big thought leader or anything like that. Um, but I think what happened, partly because I, I work with people in all different disciplines, and that's by design because I really need variety in my life. You know, a lot of editors will specialize um, in one or two disciplines. But for me, um, working with a social scientist one day and a, you know, a literary scholar the next day and a historian the next day, like that variety is what keeps me engaged and creative and keeps my ideas flowing. So I spent all these years like in a cave, engaged deeply with these um, knowledge construction projects in their process of formation. And what happened was I, I started seeing patterns um, across all of these projects, like patterns in what makes scholarly communication effective that are, and they're kind of surprising. Like I think um, a lot of academics, when they're thinking about writing, they might 
look for advice um, and insight from people who are close to their discipline or in their discipline. So they're not kind of necessarily drawing large parallels across disciplines. But I, I was able to from this unique perspective. Um, and so then I kind of, you know, with my passion for research and academic writing, it became this like deep need to like do something with this knowledge that I was developing. And so ultimately it became in my mind, I kind of gave it the name, the story argument model. Like what is happening when a piece of research communication is effective? It is making an argument about what the evidence means, but it's also telling a story that invites the audience or the reader into like a co-construction of that meaning. That's what makes it really compelling and meaningful. And that's what situates this new knowledge within a much larger, you know, tradition of knowledge construction that, you know, that is the story of the human, like the story of humanity. Um, (laughs) So if I'm getting too abstract, tell me I can take this down more concrete. No, Um, I think that's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So I know it's grandiose, but yeah, I just became like, as the more, the clearer this idea of this story argument, mo- argument model became in my mind, the more urgency I felt to figure out a way to get it out there. Because if more people can have more, can have a clearer sense of what makes scholarly communication effective, then that model becomes a really powerful tool for navigating the process of knowledge construction. So that's kind of, like, I guess, well, your initial question was, what were you doing before? And um, and what I was doing before kind of has led to me sort of inevitably to where I am now um, that, with, the, this, yeah, this moment of needing to share it more widely. Yeah, that's perfect, perfect, perfect. And this is something that's been on my mind quite a bit lately, as you know, um, kind of one of the mindset shifts that I have noticed as a pattern in all the interviews that I've done over the last three years is that so many small business owners uh, get started with sort of a, a, what I call a special snowflake mindset, which is that, you know, they're, they're very focused on this is the work that I do. This is how I do it differently. Aren't I so wonderful that I can get these results for people, but that as their businesses grow and mature, they start to see, they start to transition away from being a special snowflake and into understanding what their special sauce is. And that special sauce is something that can be transmitted to other people. And so what you've just laid out here is that transition absolutely beautifully. I mean, you didn't say anything, any special snowflake things about yourself, but no, but you're, that's absolutely right though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So then I, I'd actually be curious, what, uh, did, did you experience that kind of special snowflakeness early on in your business? Well, um, that's a really good question. I, I definitely, I wondered what the source of the power was mm. <laughs> that, that came out weird. My, no, that's so such cons- a great way to put it. <laughs> my clients have consistently like over and over, one of the most consistent pieces of feedback I get from my one-on-one clients is Marga, you are magic. How do you do it? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's, but I'm like, but I'm not, I'm so aware of my humanity. And I know that something that you've said is that magic is just technology. We don't understand yet. Yes. So when I kept getting this piece of feedback, I thought like, I'm magic in the sense that the human mind is magic, not in the sense that I have some unique power. Like my brain is doing something specific when I'm listening to people and offering them ways of reframing things and asking them questions and suggesting structures. Like 
not that it could be reduced to a computer algorithm, but there is a pattern there that could be elucidated that other people could use too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what you've done is gone and cre- and understood, worked to understand this technology, worked to understand what your special sauce is, and that's that story argument model. Can you walk us through the process of actually identifying that process, if 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 that's possible at all? Like, wh- how did you start to document the patterns that you noticed with the clients that you were working with one on one? Oh man, that is such a good question. And I, I could probably like spend a week trying to answer it. <laughs> um, I guess the short answer is I've done everything. I've tried everything. Um, I've had a million interactions just in my personal life with people. I'm one of those people who obnoxiously like talks about my work in every possible setting. Yeah. Um, Cause it's amazing the insights you can get from just people who are far outside um, your immediate work vicinity. Um, I think early, I think when I first decided I was going to just like suck it up and try to systematize it in an almost mathematical kind of way, I think before that moment, I had, I definitely went through a soul searching process of, um, back to your question of special sauce, a soul searching process of how much of this is innate in like, what quality do I have that enables me to do this? Like how much of it can be externalized? I went through that whole soul searching process. And then in conversations with a few, um, like super business minded, technical minded people, they were like, Margie, write an algorithm, (laughs) you know? So I kind of went the opposite direction and tried, you know, mapping out lots of different diagrams and flowcharts and algorithmic kinds of ways of representing what's happening. Um, I moved through that through um, through more um, like intuition based relational ways of describing it. I, I guess it's been really a, a process of exploration over the last year and a half or so. So it was a year and a half ago that I decided I was going to write a workbook. <laughs> um, I hit on this genre as like a really effective way. So the fundamental challenge here is that when I'm working with scholars one-on-one. I'm not giving them information or ideas or advice. I'm holding space for them to help them develop their ideas and their thoughts. So I'm like providing a scaffolding and a structure to that process. So that can't, like, even if I wanted to give advice, that can't be captured in the form of advice. So I hit on this idea of a workbook as like a sort of scaffolding that individuals could use, like, on their own in the midst of their thinking and writing and research process. So it was about a year and a half ago that I started writing that and that the draft of the workbook has taken so many different forms. Like I've written, you know, just like my clients, they'll come to me with like a hundred thousand words for a 60,000 word book. And they haven't written two of the chapters yet. Kind of a thing you, you have to generate, like you have to generate at least the only way I know for knowledge to come into being is for you to externalize lots and lots and lots of stuff from your head, like generate lots and lots of material that doesn't end up making it into the final version or into a public version, but it's necessary to that process of creating and clarifying. Um, So I'm not sure how well this is answering your question, (laughs) because I feel like I'm basically just saying um, I've just worked on it kind of, um, almost obsessively and like 
everywhere I go, everything I see, every inf- piece of information I take in is somehow shaping and refining that model. Yeah. Um, I mean, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that's actually a brilliant answer to that question because, um, you know, what you've done is, and this is, this is part and parcel with that transition from special snowflake to special sauce, but you've transitioned from a passion for serving an individual client or an individual client's work to an obsession with the process that you use to do that. And I think that mindset shift is really key. And so all these different things that you've tried, all the different frameworks, all the different flow charts, the algorithms, the intuitive processes, they're all related to this passion for figuring this out. And I think that's the most important piece of, of that shift. Is that an accurate way to describe what you've experienced? Yes. Yes. I think absolutely. And then it transformed my one-on-one work with my clients because now it's like, I always have a tab open when I'm engaging one-on-one with them. I'm always thinking about how this fits, how this relates to the big picture, how this speaks back to the larger model, you know? Yeah. So yeah, they kind of inform each other. The model, the emerging model informs my one-on-one work with clients and my one-on-one work with clients informs the emerging model. Yeah. Kind of back and forth. I also love that you refer to it as an emerging model. This is not something that is that is set in stone. And we're going to get to that in, in just a little bit, too. Um, but I want to kind of call out that in transitioning to making uh, or to, to reaching bigger audiences, to presenting the work to bigger audiences, step one was really understanding that emerging model or working to understand that emerging model, even mm-hmm. if you are not fully uh, understanding it, understanding it yet. Um, yes. Because I think mm-hmm. that that's a huge piece of this puzzle. I think so many people just you know, they skip to wanting to reach out to bigger audiences, but they don't actually know what they're reaching out with. Um, and mm-hmm. so that step one is really, really important. So as you have worked on this emerging model, what are some of the things that you've done to get it in front of more people so that you can also then in the process better understand it yourself? That's such a good question. And I definitely, this is another one of those that I mulled over and tried various things over the course of months. Um, one thing that has been super helpful to me is to kind of frame this whole thing as me hosting a party. Because, <laughs> um, you know, when you, when you host a party, you, um, you invite people, but you also like go grocery shopping and you prepare food and you lay out a table. You set things out for people to partake of what appeals to them. So it's, in other words, the, me getting ready to speak to a larger audience or not, I don't even like the word audience. <laughs> I think of it as a conversation. Like, so me, I'll, I'll just say, me shifting scholarship from a one-on-one service to a larger conversation meant setting my refreshments table so that I had something to offer them that they could have a sense of agency in choosing what to take and how to use it, as opposed to me preparing some finished package and like shoving it down people's throats. Mm. Um, Because for the longest time, I was really stuck. I kept writing and writing and writing and couldn't couldn't figure out what to do with everything I was writing because it it didn't, it, it was somehow, well, I mean, the missing piece that I didn't yet realize was that the entire ethos of this project is the fact that knowledge is co-constructed and I'm not making the story argument model. I'm synthesizing it based on this conversation that a lot of people are involved in. Um, so in concrete terms, what this has looked like is the, 
um, I guess maybe my first big deliberate effort to put some usable material out in public <laughs> was for the month of November, which is Academic Writing Month. I challenged myself to put out a new reflection question every day all month. So I recorded these like two minute videos. In each video, I share a question that I was using in my own writing that day and inviting people to use the question in their own writing if it resonated with them. And I, in each video, when I stated the question, I suggested a few different ways of approaching the question, depending on where you are in your project, what type of project you're working on, um, and what you're finding energizing or challenging at that moment where you are in your process. And I posted the videos on my blog and I had a mailing list that I sent. Some people accessed the videos through the mailing list. Other people just, you know, told me separately that they independently came to my website every day or found it on Twitter or whatever. So people had their own, whatever people's own comfortable way was to access the videos, they could access it that way. Um, and then they could use the question however they wanted. Some people, a, a handful of people actually put their responses to the questions right there in the comments of the blog post. Other people um, emailed me <laughs> their responses. Um, but I had like a lot of people around the world using these reflection questions and it was totally free for people to do. Um, and it was, it was really incredibly gratifying to see my reflection, these reflection questions that I had formulated actually being used by people. And then when I saw how people were using the questions and I saw the kinds of responses they came up with, that gave me good information on how to refine the questions. Um, so yeah, so the idea there, like for me, um, thinking of myself as setting a refreshments table and and focusing on asking good questions as opposed to dispensing advice, that was really key to, for me um, in like starting to make this shift toward engaging in a larger conversation about my quote unquote knowledge product. And I was talking with a friend yesterday about this, like trying to explain, like trying to describe how it is that I, my ideas about like, so, and I keep saying in this conversation that knowledge construction, knowledge building is a collaborative process. Um, and I, I want scholarship to support people in this collaborative process, but I also want to embody that collaborative process. And, you know, so this, these resources I'm putting out there are trying to do that. And she's like, Margie, that's exactly what people do, like in a lean startup with a, with like a software product, you know? You release your minimum viable products. You don't expect that it's finished or complete. And in a sense, like the early users of that product and the feedback they give are co-constructors of that product. So, you know, in a sense, we're already doing this. We're already creating product, like software products and physical products collaboratively. And I think that we can produce and develop knowledge products collab collaboratively too. Amen to that. What Works is brought to you by Gusto. Now that you've had time to think about what you want from your business in 2019, it's time to take action. If hiring is on your list, you might be feeling intimidated by the paperwork, the red tape, and the legal hoops you need to jump through. I know I was two years ago when I hired my first full-time employee. Then I found Gusto. Gusto makes it easy. We use Gusto to automatically file and pay our payroll taxes, manage time off, and offer benefits. 
Plus, listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. So if you're ready to grow your team in 2019, now's the time to start. Try a demo and test it out at gusto.com slash what works. That's gusto.com slash what works. What Works is also brought to you by Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks powers brands and businesses that bring people together. When I started my small business over 10 years ago, the people I brought together had to jump from platform to platform to interact, learn, and connect. We had one app for online courses, another for events, another for our content, and still another to talk together as a community. None of these apps talk to each other, of course, and most were a disaster on a phone or tablet. And on top of that, I had to pay for each one separately. Then we found Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks let us bring our website, content, courses, community, and events together all in one place. Plus, it made it easy to centralize fees and accept payments. Plus, Mighty Networks makes everything we create easy to access on mobile with our own app. Make 2019 the year you streamline the way you do business and build real relationships at the same time. Get started with Mighty Networks free of charge by visiting MightyNetworks.com. Mighty Networks is the easiest way to take your business to the next level. So let's talk more about this minimum viable product thing, because I actually, as I was continuing to prepare for this interview, went into your blog and I read that this exact reflection. And I'd actually love to read something that you wrote on your blog, because I think you said it absolutely so beautifully. And I'm so with you on this idea of co-creating knowledge products. But you wrote, quote, I realize that the beauty of the MVP concept is that you can release something before it is done and trust that it is not gone from you. Even as it is being released for others to use and interact with, you can keep nurturing it and developing it. I can release an MVP version of my work and still retain its parent or still remain its parent and nurturer or CEO. I can keep developing it even when its tender form is spending time in others' hands. Man, that to me (laughs) just really encapsulated um, everything that I have loved about putting my work out into the public before it was done before it was finished, before the system was perfected, the model had emerged, whatever, whatever, you know, kind of framework that you're working in. I just love how you put that. And I'd love to dive into that a little bit further, because this was really when you reached out to me, this was really what stuck uh, with me about your email or struck me about your email was this idea that, um, you know, we we need to put our work out there before it's ready, before it's done, so that we can have that conversation. And I think so many people get stuck trying to make it perfect, trying to make it done before it goes public. Um, can you talk, can you maybe give us an example of something that you've learned about your own process because you have shared it with the public? Hmm. I think a big thing, a recent thing that's fresh on my mind is with that, that 30 day reflection exercise I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, the questions were specifically framed for scholarly research projects, but I told all my friends about it (laughs) (laughs) and, and a lot of them signed up, you know, just because they're my friends. But then we got a few days in and they, and more and more of them started saying to me, like, Margie, these questions are really powerful for me too, for, you know, fill in the blank, whatever project they were working on. Other types of knowledge construction projects, whether, um, you know, 
well, I guess a lot of them were business related, you know, because a lot of my entrepreneur friends have thought centric businesses, you know, Mm -hmm. they're doing a lot of this thought work in it. Um, But my sister is in the middle of like a major life redesign. (laughs) And so and she used the questions every day for that. So by putting the questions out there for one intended audience, and then kind of accidentally attracting these other audiences or users, um, that experience helped me see that it, it really helped deepen my appreciation for how how much this is this knowledge construction process is basically the same across all of these different realms of life. Um, you know, the, what academics are doing when they construct knowledge is what entrepreneurs are doing when they construct businesses around knowledge, and it's what individuals are doing when they redesign their lives to have more of what they want in their lives. You know, it's, it's this process of you, you formulate the questions that are going to guide your efforts. You collect information that will help illuminate that question. You sort through the information, you organize it and shape it and develop it into a form that is coherent and meaningful. Like that's what knowledge construction is. And we're, we are all doing it. Um, And I don't know if I would have really realized that if I hadn't um, put this stuff out into the world in such a way that, um, that other, that a a wide variety of types of people engaged with it. Mm, I love that. Um, well, that's a good segue, I think, into my next question, which is more about you and less about the work itself. Because you also mentioned to me that you found you're having to grow yourself in addition to growing your business. Can you tell us about a particular experience in which you really noticed yourself growing, changing, having to adapt to showing up in a new way? Yes. I think the biggest thing here is actively cultivating my intuition. (laughs) Um, Because this way of being that we've been talking about, where you're having to like think on your feet and like, absorb feedback in real time and like making lots of decisions in kind of in public, or you know, you can't, you you can't necessarily make every decision on your own time, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. kind of have to, you have to trust yourself in a certain way. Um, And so for me, like the way I think about like who is the me who is navigating this process, making all of these decisions. I think a core piece of that is like this deep inner knowing. <laughs> I don't, and I don't even know how else to describe it other than just saying intuition. Um, like the, the things that you know without being able to totally explain why. Um, but I don't think it's magic per se. I think, like, I think it's possible to, um, to develop your intuition and make it stronger and better. <laughs> So I've been actively working on that. What are, Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. So like a specific tool, and this is going to sound crazy and so people can stop listening now if they want. That's okay. (laughs) No, they're Um, not allowed to stop listening. (laughs) (laughs) Or skip ahead five minutes. Um, So one of my big tools that I use is tarot. I use tarot cards. Um, And I just discovered this like a year ago. And my perception before I hit on this was that you have to have a certain set of spiritual beliefs or, you know, believe in a certain type of magic or whatever. Um, like that I had this idea that the cards are about fortune telling and like all these things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not dismissing that use of them, but th- that doesn't necessarily resonate with me personally. Um, but I discovered about a year ago, this kind of way of, well, long story short, I, I feel like I want to answer every question for like 10 weeks, but, um, <laughs> 
basically I, I realized that people use these as a way of looking at situations from a new perspective and figuring out what you already know about a question that you have. So basically the, like the really quick version is a tarot deck is 78 cards. This it's a tradition. People can't pinpoint exactly where this tradition came from because it has so many different cultural roots. Um, but the deck as we now have it has existed for, you know, centuries. And the idea is, you know, some people believe that the deck of these images, 78 images, somehow represents all aspects of human experience. Like any experience you could have in your life is somehow reflected in the cards. Um, so if you, there are certain types of questions you can ask and then flip a card and then the card will somehow shed light on your question. So if the, if you ask a question that's not, not like what's going to happen in the future or like a yes or no question, but something like, so a really powerful question I used tarot for was the question of what is my voice in this book or am, what voice am I writing in mm-hmm. when I'm, when I'm, you know, trying to express whatever it is I'm trying to express and draw people into this co-construction of meaning. So that's, that was a good tarot question. And I actually went to a tarot reader with this question because I, I couldn't quite get the insight I needed on my own. My, my reader, Gina, who's amazing, Incandescent Tarot, um, I went to her and I said, um, like, what is my voice for this book? <laughs> and she did this hour-long reading and she flipped over, I think it was maybe 10 or 12 cards. And we talked and talked and talked. And by the end of that reading, I had a, a clear picture that my voice for the book had three elements. One is um, I'm a, like a grounded hostess with this, you know, inviting people into my lush garden of abundance to share with them from my abundance. So that's one element. Um, the other element is confidence in my in my logical clarity, like the, um, the logical soundness of what I'm offering. Like I, it's very rigorously developed and, um, has this sound basis to it. And then the third dimension of my voice or my really myself (laughs) is, um, that I want, like what I'm producing provides people insight into a deeper meaning or a higher meaning or some other source of knowledge beyond, beyond the logical or beyond what can quite be articulated. So I, this reading was probably nine months ago and I still think about it almost every day. Um, and, and, and I think it was powerful because like, as soon as Gina said it to me, I knew it was true, you know? It, it's not even so so tarot is not so much for me it's not so much about getting information from outside as it is about um it's like turning the composter of your soul <laughs> or something um to so that these this all the material in there turns into this fertile soil mm. so yeah so i've used tarot a lot that's one specific example of like a very actionable insight that got me unstuck um, but really you can, and I'm, I've turned a lot of my friends onto it too now as like a business tool. 
Yeah, I, you know, I have a lot of business friends who rely very heavily on tarot for much the same reasons that you're describing here. And, you know, they have a, a sort of a spectrum of different spiritual worldviews. So some of them um, might be a little bit more on the, the more spiritual worldview side of tarot. And then others are using it um, kind of more objectively or strategically uh, like you are. But what I what struck me as you were describing this is it sounds like um, the, using tarot cards and even going for a professional tarot reading is you uh, co-constructing knowledge and meaning with the cards or with the reader. Um, and so it kind of on a meta level is related to everything that you've been talking about to this point and watching this work evolve. Would you say that's true? Yes, definitely. Yeah. That is so awesome. I I, I love this idea and I love the, the I love just use you know, okay, here's what no matter what you think of this tool, here is a tool <laughs> that I am using to figure out what I already know. And I think that that's so much at the heart of um, taking your work to bigger audiences or making it more powerful for uh, larger groups of people is just, it's an effort to better understand what you already know. And, you know, no matter what the tool is, if there's a tool out there that's going to help you do it, then that's a tool that you should be using, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. Like, that's amazing that your other business friends use it too. That's great. I feel a little less crazy now. Yeah, no, please don't feel crazy. I mean, it's something that, and I also have tarot reader friends, like even on the podcast, we had uh, Teresa Reed back very early on in the podcast, who um, is a, a very popular tarot reader online, um, has a phenomenal client base. Um, and when I see her posts on um, on Instagram, or when I see my friend uh, Kathleen and Emily from Being Boss, and they're talking about tarot, you know, I always think to myself, like, that is such a power tool, regardless of what you think of the spiritual background or the worldview background behind it, man, that's a powerful tool just to, you know, because they're, it's almost like the questions that you gave your readers in November, right? It's just, mm -hmm. it is a tool for reframing what you're already thinking about in an effort to better understand what you already know. And that is a really powerful process. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'll have to look up that old I, I heard your old episode with the the person who, um, she's an oracle, which oh, uh, yeah. was amazing. Diana Valentine. But I haven't heard the, yes, I, but I need to look for that tarot reader one now yep. too. Teresa Reed, check that out. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right, awesome. So I want to start wrapping up here, um, but I'm curious kind of what you have planned um, tactically for continuing to... Um, broaden the audience or, or not broaden the audience, but, but take this work to bigger audiences, um, you know, share it publicly. What, what kind of things do you have planned maybe for the new year? Well, the long-term plan is I'm working toward getting a book contract because I now realize what I thought was like a 50 page workbook I could just self-publish is now a lot more of like a full length whole book. Nice. Um, so I'm working toward that, um, which means, you know, putting out my weekly newsletter and things like that. Um, but, uh, coming off of that 30 day November video a day thing, um, and seeing it, seeing how much the, that resource was used by a lot of different knowledge builders, I've developed, a sort of distilled, slightly reframed version of that. It's a seven day email course called deep Y, um, which is a series of reflection questions that knowledge builders can use 
to get in touch with the deep purpose underlying their knowledge building process. Because when we have a really clear sense of that deep purpose, it can really help us navigate all of these, all of the millions of decisions and judgment calls and things like that that happen as we construct knowledge. So anyone can sign up for that for free. It's on my website at scholarshape.com slash courses. Um, so if people are curious to try out the scholarship method, um, I'm assuming that the, that the audience for this podcast is, would be more entrepreneurs than academics. But if people want to try this out for their particular knowledge construction projects, that's a great way to do it. Awesome. I'm going to be checking that out personally. <laughs> oh, yay. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think our listeners are, um, uh, there are lots of people involved in knowledge construction, as you put it, that are listening to the podcast. Um, and yeah, like I said, I'm totally going to check it out. I am very intrigued by the system and the model that you're creating here. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm excited to have gotten this kind of behind the scenes look at it. And I'm excited about checking it out more. So uh, Margie Thomas, Thank you so much for this conversation and for the insight into your process of turning, well, your process into something uh, that's accessible to more and more people. Thank you so much for having me, Tara. It was great to be here. Find out more about Margie Thomas and the story argument model at scholarshape.com. Love this episode? I'd love if you left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. When you do, you help us reach more small business owners and help encourage them to explore what works for them. This episode was produced by me, Tara McMullen, and edited by Marty Seafelt. Our theme music is by The Shrugs. Find more than 170 other episodes of What Works at whatworkspodcast.com. <laughs>